Today, as we continue our, our second time in the Gospel of Luke for this series anyway, uh, we'll be looking at verses uh, 5 to 25. And we will begin with the reading of the Word of God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. Father, we turn our hearts to you now. And I I pray, Father, that whatever distracting thoughts are invading our thoughts right now, I pray that they would be driven aside. And I pray that perhaps whatever burden or trial is pressing upon our minds, we would bring this word to bear on those difficulties. And I pray, Father, that we would have in our 
lives and in our day-to-day living, the certainty of faith that your Holy Spirit moved Luke to write and to intend with this work. I pray that we would grow in our certainty, grow in our faith, and be filled with joy and rejoicing and gladness and song and the word of witness to the great things that you have done for us through your Son, our Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would give to us your Spirit, that our hearts and our minds, our souls, our strength would exalt in Jesus. According to your mercy and grace, give to us your Spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Luke, obviously, there's no doubt, poured his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength into this project of investigating everything closely concerning what God had done, what God had accomplished through his son. And the reason that he engaged heart and soul and mind and strength in this project was because he was longing at the movement of the the Spirit, for the people of God, for Theophilus, as he writes in verses 1 to 4, particularly verse 4, Theophilus and everybody like him, everybody in his camp, he wanted to have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Certainty of the truth of Jesus and certainty of the worth of Jesus. And so as Luke begins this narrative in verse 5, he highlights a man who really, by all standards, worldly standards, was a common man and his wife a, a common woman. They weren't great in the earth. They were common people, small people, aged people, weak people. When everybody thought, okay, now this couple is done, when they even might be tempted to think, okay, now we're getting toward you know the sunset of life and we're going to be on the shelf, so to speak. God is going to do great things through them. But in highlighting this individual, Luke highlights, at least in the beginning, unbelief. As he aims for certainty in the people of God, Luke highlights this case of uncertainty and what it cost him. I want to ask you as we begin, does your everyday living and your everyday believing reflect certainty concerning the things that God has done for us? Certainty of the truth of Jesus? And does your life reflect certainty of the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ? The the aim of this for mankind was joy and gladness and rejoicing. And as we continue through these two chapters, we'll see much singing. Praise lifted up to God. There must be certainty for that joy to be in place. Certainty of the truth and worth of Jesus for hope and joy and gladness and a song to fill our hearts. And also the word of witness to the world of what God has done. If we're going to have that, we must be certain 
of the truth and the worth of Jesus. Do you believe? Are you certain that God was incarnated? Are you certain that God became a man two millennia ago in the Middle East? Do you believe with all your heart? You know, one thing that I mentioned last week in the introduction to this gospel is that Luke was a first-rate historian. Not only did he want uh, Theophilus to be certain of the, uh, the worth of Jesus, and that will be the emphasis, but also the truth of Jesus. Th- that is, the facts of the events as these things unfolded, what God accomplished. He wanted Theophilus to be certain of the, the facts. And so he was a first-rate historian, very precise in the detail of placing these things in their historical setting. And, of course, Theophilus had a lot better knowledge, being a lot closer to these events than we are. He had a lot better knowledge of the historical setting. Luke didn't have to say a lot. But you know what I'm afraid of? We being 2,000 years removed and and having to, if we want to know, you really get into the, the study of the history and everything... I'm afraid that we can think of a man by the name of Herod as a cartoon figure or a flannel graph figure or to have some kind of legendary, even mythical quality to him. Zachariah and Luke and even Jesus. I'm afraid of us thinking that they look more like VeggieTales characters than true, real-life, time-and-space persons on this earth. And so I want to give a little more context to you in the historical background than even Luke does. These specific events took place in the days, Luke notes, of Herod the king of Judea, toward the end of his reign. Most scholars would locate the birth of Jesus in 6 or 5 BC, a year or so before Herod died. Now let's step way back and locate this in history. Please stay engaged. This isn't crucial to your Christian life, but I think it will be helpful for your understanding. We're going to step way back, okay? We just finished going through the book of Micah, so let's step back to his time. Micah was prophesying 100 years before the Jews were taken captive by the Babylonian Empire and and exiled to the land of Babylon out of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. While the Jews were captive in Babylon, the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians, just as Daniel the prophet prophesied, and in time the Persians released the Jews to go back to Judea and to build Jerusalem again. So that's in about the 530s B.C. 200 years later, the Macedonian Empire, or the Greeks as we would know them better, with Alexander the Great at the helm, conquered the Persians in the 330s B.C. 
Alexander the Great was one of the, the greatest military leaders of all time, but he lived a short life. In fact, just a few short years after conquering the Persians, he died while he was still in his early 30s, and his kingdom was split into four, being divided up amongst four generals. And again, this happened precisely according to the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. Two of these generals of Alexander's, Ptolemy and Seleucus, gained control of uh, the southern region of the Mediterranean Sea. Alexander's kingdom was huge. It went down to, to Egypt in the south of the Mediterranean, all the way to India in the east. The east. And um, so Ptolemy and Seleucus controlled Egypt and Palestine and Ptolemy did, and Seleucus secured control of Babylon and Syria. And these two empires, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empire, would clash for the next hundred years until the Seleucids in the east were able to invade Palestine and finally wrestle away control in 198 B.C., Okay, so, and you understand that Palestine is the region of Judea. This is the home to the Jews. Now, the second Seleucid ruler of Judea went by the name of Antiochus IV. He called himself Epiphanes, which means the manifest one. He was giving himself the name of a god. But the people didn't, at least the Jews didn't, call him Epiphanes, many called him Emimenes, which means madman, because he was a madman. He was so fanatical in his determination to Hellenize Judea, that is to inundate it with uh, Greek culture and influence, that he he took every Old Testament uh, copy of scripture that he could find and destroyed them. He made the practice of circumcision and the offering of sacrifices punishable by death. Antiochus IV slaughtered thousands, scores of thousands of men, women, and children, Jews all. He offered a pig on the altar in the temple and rededicated the temple of God to Zeus, committing what Daniel had called hundreds of years earlier, the abomination of desolation. Now in response to this, in the 160s BC, an elderly priest by the name of Mattathias and his five sons revolted. Early on in the ensuing warfare, Mattathias and two of his sons were killed. Three of his sons remained. And it was under the leadership of Judas Mattathias' son, that Judea was able to win their political independence in 164 BC. Judas not only won independence for Jerusalem and Judea, he also won a lot of accolades for himself, including the name Maccabee, which means the hammerer. He was an incredible warrior. And by the way, side note, it was winning back Judea and rededicating the temple to God that uh, set off until this present day uh, a yearly celebration that the Jews call Hanukkah. For a century, the Maccabees, who were also then known as the Hasmonean dynasty after one of their ancestors, and that's important, 
the Maccabees, known as the Hasmonean dynasty, they reigned in Jerusalem for the next hundred years. So for 100 years, the Jews were free. But after the second generation, so Mattathias, the patriarch of the family, he's gone, and the five sons, they're gone. After that second generation has disappeared, the family becomes increasingly corrupt and even pagan. So in 63 BC, leading Jews appeal to this growing republic in the West for help. And Rome is glad to oblige. The Roman emperor Pompey enters into Judea and into the city of Jerusalem, getting control of Palestine, which the Romans will never lose grip of for the next 400 years. Pompey and Rome put a man by the name of Hyrcanus in charge. He became the procurator of Judea. He was basically a servile client leader for Rome. And um, you remember, you remember the name Julius Caesar. There was, uh, I don't have time to get into it. Julius Caesar became head of the Roman Republic. And Hyrcanus, who was a Maccabean, he was part of the Hasmonean dynasty, left in charge by Rome, he was able to win Julius Caesar's favor, along with his right-hand man, his most senior official, who went by the name of Antipater. Antipater was an Edomite. He was not a full-fledged Jew. In fact, he's a descendant of Esau a brother of Jacob, right? And whom the Jews hated. Antipater was, again, Hyrcanus' senior official, and they were able to win Julius Caesar's favor. Antipater appealed to Hyrcanus, his senior man, and uh, his commander. And he was able to persuade him to have his son, Faciel, made governor of Jerusalem, and his second eldest son, Herod, governor of Galilee. Herod at this time was only in his mid-twenties. Well, as things unfolded, Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, and Antipater, the the father of Faciel and Herod, was murdered the following year. So now, all of a sudden, there's a lot of political instability and turmoil, and this This empire to the east called the Parthians um, took advantage and invaded Palestine. They captured Hyrcanus, the last of the Maccabean family, captured him and took him away. And Faciol, the son of Antipater and brother of Herod, was also taken captive and he committed suicide. Herod was brilliant. He was a brilliant strategist, military commander, warrior, the works. And he fled. He fled into Egypt and managed to outwit in Egypt Cleopatra and escape her clutches. He made his way through a rather perilous journey in the dead of winter to Rome and got to Rome in the year 40 BC where he managed to, to win the approval of Octavian and Antony. After Julius Caesar was assassinated, you know, things were in disarray for a while. He managed to win their approval along with the Roman Senate, and with Roman help, he went back into 
Palestine, defeated the Parthians, and the Parthians had left in charge uh, a nephew of Hyrcanus. Remember, Hyrcanus was the, la- the one the Romans had left in charge. A nephew of his, Antigonus, was in power for three years. Herod defeated him, had him executed, and uh, I guess to, to you know kick someone while they're down, Herod also managed to marry uh, Antigonus's uh, teenage niece. So in doing so, Herod marries himself into that Hasmonean dynasty, kills pretty much everybody off, and is installed as king of Palestine, of Judea. In time, he'll be known as Herod the Great. Herod began his reign in the year 37 BC. He was simultaneously brilliant and wicked and quite possibly insane with a paranoia that completely tore his family apart. When he married Antigonus's uh, teenage niece and had Antigonus killed, he banished his first wife, Doris, and then he would later go on to uh, accuse that, that new wife of things, her name was Miriam, he had her executed, along with his three eldest sons. The man was crazy, brilliant and crazy. Herod the Great, he was called. Little did the Jewish people suspect in the midst of this long, dark night that they were on the verge of the sunrise sent from heaven. Little did they suspect in these dark days that a little baby was soon to be born who holds all of the Alexanders and the Caesars and the Herods and the Husseins and Assads and Isis in derision. Psalm 2, it's the anointed of the Lord. He is the anointed of the Lord who breathes upon all such men who rampage against God and they wither. Little did the Jews think that was about to happen, but it did. So it's during these days that a man by the name of Zechariah was serving in the priesthood in the division of Abijah, which was one of 24 priestly divisions in these days. There were thousands of priests in those days. He lived in the hill country that was south of Jerusalem with his wife Elizabeth. They're an elderly couple that Luke notes for two things in particular. One, they are righteous. And two, they are childless. They are righteous before God, but Elizabeth, at least, is to blame before man because she is barren. And in that culture, a woman who could not bear children was seen to be under the curse of God. So those two noteworthy things about this aged couple, righteous before God and childless in their society. Every division of the priesthood served at the temple altogether. All 24 divisions and thousands upon thousands of priests were there for every major festival at the temple in Jerusalem. But also, every division served on their own twice a year and for one week at a time. And so it's during one of those weeks that Zechariah is chosen by lot. There it is in verse 9. And I, I, I... 
I was reading, when I was reading earlier, you probably didn't notice because you were following along in your Bible, but I was smiling just, just because of he was chosen by lot. Well, the lot is cast into the lap and every decision of it is from the Lord, it says in Proverbs, and this was certainly of God. He was chosen by lot to burn incense during the hour of prayer on the altar in the holy place, which is not to be confused with the most holy place where the high priest could enter only one, only the high priest and only on one day of the year and not without blood. So this is the room, the chamber just off the most holy place that Zechariah is chosen to burn incense and to pray, um, he's to pray during this session. Now, if ever a priest got chosen for this specific duty, he would only be chosen once in order to afford as many priests as possible the opportunity for this exalted ministry to enter into the most holy place, burn the incense, and offer prayers to God on behalf of the nation. This is it for Zechariah. In other words, this is the peak of his career. This is the best thing in ministry that has ever happened to the man. So when he entered the chamber, he would have been accompanied by two assistants carrying burning coals to put upon the altar. After the coals were deposited, the two assistants would then exit, and Zechariah would be left alone to pray to God on behalf of the nation. So one moment he's alone. And the next, he's not. An angel is there with him at the right side of the altar. You have to put yourself in Zachariah's shoes. Can you imagine going through this sacred duty? How you would have been trembling before God at the ministry that you are performing? Raising prayers on behalf of all the people. Meanwhile, a great crowd outside offering their prayers as well. If I was Zechariah, my first thought at the sight of this angel would be, <gasps> strange fire. If you remember Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all of that, you remember when Nadab and Abihu, the eldest sons of Aaron, began to perform the first functions of the priesthood in the tabernacle, and they were killed for the crime of, uh, of uh, performing um, sacrifices with strange fire. We don't know what all that means, but clearly what they, they were indifferent, they were proud, they were disobedient, and God killed them. That's what my thought would be. If I saw an angel there, I'd be thinking, what have I done wrong? I'd be thinking strange fire. Now, Zechariah is not the only one that's going to have fear at the presence of an angel. Mary will have fear as this narrative unfolds. We're going to see that. The shepherds also will have fear. And just as the angel would tell Mary and the shepherds, so this angel says to Zechariah, and this is one of the refrains of the Gospel of Luke, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Verse 13. Now what prayer? What prayer has God heard? There are two things that Zechariah has been praying for. He has been praying with his wife Elizabeth for a son, 
I don't know if he had just been praying that. I'm not so certain uh, that he had because now he's aged. I, I, I have the feeling that he has given up on it. And I say that because of the unbelief that follows, even when the angel promises he will have a son. But he had been praying that. He had been in the past, at least. He was also, we know in this moment, definitely praying for the salvation of the people of God. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are on the verge of having their prayer for a son answered because the people of God are on the verge of receiving salvation from heaven. They, Zechariah and Elizabeth, will have a son because God's people will have their salvation. Let's read verses 14 to 17. The angel declares to Zechariah, and you will have joy and gladness And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Now, he was to be dedicated, consecrated completely to God, and so he must not drink wine or strong drink. Instead, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. I don't imagine that Gabriel is delivering this monotone. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah is filled with joy and wonder and gratitude. Not quite. But before we get to that unbelief, let's... Look first at the glory of heaven's promise. This announcement concerning the birth of John is filled with allusions to Old Testament promises. The angel is delivering a promise to Zechariah that past promises, long ago promises, are about to be fulfilled. Not only will Zechariah and Elizabeth rejoice, but there will be many who have joy and gladness at the coming of John. I want you to to note the fullness of the Spirit. It says, even from his mother's womb. This fullness of the Spirit from the mother's womb is unprecedented in the Old Testament era. In that era, the Holy Spirit came upon the servants of God to anoint them for specific seasons and specific moments of ministry. But Zechariah will be filled even from his mother's womb. He will carry out his ministry, the angel says, in the spirit and power of Elijah, who was the greatest of the Old Testament preaching prophets. And there are going to, there's going to be a lot of uh, parallels between the ministry of John, whom we will know as the Baptist later, and the ministry of Elijah many, many years earlier. Uh, for one thing, John's not going to be afraid to confront kings over their sin, just like Elijah, if you remember, confronted Ahab. And uh, John's choice of clothing is going to also be similar to Elijah's. Both of them were were noted for their odd choices of fashion. But it's not those parallels that, um, that the angel intends for Zechariah to understand. He doesn't, even, he doesn't mention Elijah's uh, wild side at all. Instead, 
what he brings to Zechariah's mind are the last words that were spoken in the Old Testament scriptures. For 400 years, heaven had been silent, so to speak. That is, with no new revelation, of course, continued to speak, as the scriptures do, even for us, continue to speak. But there was no new revelation. And so the angel brings to mind the last words spoken through the prophet Malachi. I want you to look back over these few verses, verses 14 to 17, while I read two portions from Malachi. I'm going to read from Malachi 3, verse 1 first. So you, you skim over, glance over Luke 1, 14 through 17, especially the latter part. Behold, the Lord says, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now I'm going to read the very last words of the Old Testament. Again, you look down at Luke 1, 14 through 17, particularly the latter part. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Zechariah, as a veteran priest in the service of the Lord, would have known these words very, very well. Now he is hearing that they will be fulfilled in his son. His son is going to have a ministry of preaching repent to the nation. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. He will have a turning ministry. He will serve to turn the people back to the ancient paths. Back to the ways of God. Back to holiness. In preparation for the coming of the Lord of the covenant. Salvation is coming to Israel and Zechariah and Elizabeth will bear the child who is going to prepare the way. And Zechariah says, glory! You would think. But it's not. He says, really, show me some proof. Literally, the words are, he says, how can I know? Literally, it's according to what? That is, on what basis can I know this? Like an angelic appearance and an angelic announcement wasn't enough for him. I'm glad Mary didn't respond like this to Gabriel. I'm glad the shepherds didn't respond like this. I mean, think of the announcement to Mary. You're going to bear a child. You don't know a man, but you're going to have a child. Mary could have said, on what basis? Do, don't the angels know, you know, the birds and the bees and all that kind of stuff? The shepherds could have said, nothing exciting like that happens in Bethlehem, especially not on my shift. They don't respond like that. The elderly priest does. Not to be too hard on someone who is our brother, but I know that Zechariah is glad that people learn from the example of his failure. Gabriel's response to this, I think, is controlled, Anger. Justly so. Rightly so. Zechariah says, impossible. 
I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years, which I think is a polite way of saying that, you know, have you seen my wife? (laughs) That kind of thing. He says, and my wife is advanced in years. He says, I am an old man. And Gabriel speaks and he says, this is not about you. I, you're an old man, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. This is not about you. This is who I am from. And what he has given me to tell you. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. What God has spoken, believe and obey. But how many Christians are like Zechariah? You know what the answer that Christians often give to the commandment of God? When God tells us, to love Him with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves and to preach the gospel to every creature and so on. Basically, our response, even if we don't voice it, is much like Zacharias. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. And we reckon ourselves to be weak and small and of no account, which is all true. But we, because we believe we are nothing, we resign ourselves to nothing. Faith is definitely hard. And I believe that faith in the Bible is even heroic. The way that the Lord Jesus wonders at faith and praises faith, and the way, for example, Hebrews 11 and how saints who exercise great faith are held up as witnesses, faith is heroic. But faithlessness and unbelief It's so disappointing. And it's so costly. Because first and foremost, it is a rejection of the God who is and who speaks to his people. It's a rejection of his word and a rejection of his will. So Zechariah wants a sign. On what basis can I know this? So he will be given a sign. Gabriel says, behold, here is your sign you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Whether you are certain, Zechariah, or uncertain, whether you believe or don't believe, these things that God has spoken will be fulfilled. Thank God for that. Whether we are in or on the sidelines, whether we believe or don't believe, the God of heaven is going to accomplish his purpose. He will fulfill all things in the time that he has appointed. In the meantime, the people who are gathered outside are beginning to get restless. What's happened to Zechariah? Do you think he offered strange fire? When he emerges, he's unable to speak to them. And apparently, we understand as this whole narrative unfolds, not only is he unable to speak, he's unable to hear. And this is a fitting discipline. As Zechariah refused to hear what God spoke to him, 
So now he will be unable to hear or speak anything until this promise is fulfilled. And again, this is so disappointing. I am, I am sure that with a very sorrowful heart, Zechariah regretted his unbelief immediately because it was part of the custom that once the priest emerged from the holy place and offering that prayer up to God, he was now to speak blessing over the people. And again, this is the, this is the peak of his ministry. It does not get any better for a common priest than this. And he can't speak the blessing. He can't speak anything. He just, he's able to communicate basically in charades. That's it. And through making signs, people are able to understand that Zechariah has seen some kind of vision in the temple. And I'm sure that he wanted to speak more. But I mean, how do you communicate that you're going to have a baby? You could throw his, uh, this is my, you know, wife get pregnant, <laughs> and I'm going to do this. They're like, they're looking at Zachariah, the old man, thinking, oh, this guy, yeah, he's lost it. But he can't speak. There are many people who call themselves Christians who don't sing the praises of God for what he has done for them in the gospel. And they don't share the word of witness to Christ to the world. It's muted. Why? It's the same problem as Zechariah had. Unbelief. Unbelief. Some will have a physical impediment. Perhaps right from birth that keeps them from speaking the praises of God and the words of his witness. But, and, and that can happen again when we reach age. But for most, the problem is not a physical impediment. The root problem, as with Zechariah, was a spiritual impediment. Unbelief. Zechariah, again, supposed to be at the height of his career and how much he missed because of this unbelief. Could you be missing out on ministry from God because faith is missing? Because your impediment is unbelief in the word that God has spoken? Your uncertainty of the truth and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have a question for you. There are some, I believe, who will profess Christ when asked, when prodded, who yet don't offer up the songs of joy and gladness and praise for what God has done and are silent to the world in witness for Jesus. Do you think that someone who goes through their entire life silent, who never urges a sinner, never, never once urges a sinner to, uh, to repentance before God and faith in Jesus Christ,
Do you think that this individual is suddenly going to be in glory and erupting in praise? Now, we all fail. Every one of us fails. Sadly, pathetically, far too often. But there's a difference between falling short and never getting out of the gate. There's a difference. What ministry might you be missing to neighbors, to community, to your own family, if praise and the word of witness are muted? When Zechariah reached the end of his service, he went back home to wait for the time of the fulfillment of God's promise. And again, God is going to fulfill his promise, whether Zechariah is certain or uncertain. Thank God that he doesn't need us, but praise him that he uses us. It is so much better for us to be certain of the truth and the worth of Jesus and the great things he has done. It is so much better being certain to cooperate with God with his work in the world, to be the body of Christ in service, to be the ambassadors of Christ's kingdom, to speak of the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that can never be shaken. So much better for us to be certain and to speak on the kingdom's behalf, which we have been sent to announce. If we will be certain of the truth and the worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, we aren't told exactly why, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me. That's the gospel. Thus the Lord has done for me. In the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. God is going to pour out his mercy on the nation, and he's going to pour it out soon. But now, At this moment, even as Zechariah is experiencing discipline, there is great mercy. And what I want you to realize is that Zechariah and Elizabeth are a portent of things to come. I think I'm using that word in the right sense. They are a sign of things to come. How does the world look on this aged priest and his wife? She suffers reproach. Why? Because she's barren. She's unable to have any children. And so the world says, you're on the shelf. You can't be used. You're weak and you're small. And to an extent, I believe that she would have borne far more reproach in this patriarchal society than Zechariah. In a sense, they were despised. She says, now this reproach is taken away. They're a sign of things to come. They are the kind of people that Luke is going to highlight as he tells the story of Jesus over and over and over again. Young Mary from Nazareth in Galilee, just a young girl. Shepherds who are poor and despised in doing the grunt work in the countryside. The prodigal son who wasted his father's inheritance. Many like them. Zacchaeus is another despised. Or that woman that Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7 says is just a sinner. They're a sign of things to come. What is that? 
And it's not just a sign of what happens here, but it's a sign for history. That not many mighty, not many noble are called. It's the weak and it's the small. I don't know anybody here who would say, I'm mighty, I'm noble. We're weak and we're small. But God wants to use the weak and the small through whom He can prove Himself powerful and show Himself glorious to the world. Not for our glory. Not for our exaltation. But for His And when Christ is glorified, we who are weak and small and certain of his worth will be glorified with him. Zechariah and Elizabeth are a sign of things to come. And I hope that you find echo of their story in your life. Zechariah doesn't stay uncertain. By the time we get to the end of this chapter, He is going to let loose a torrent of praise. It's disappointing that it was pent up, shut up until that time. But he is going to praise. And I just want to ask you in close. Are you growing in your certainty of the truth and worth of Jesus? And are you growing like Zechariah in your praise in your song, and in your witness to the great things that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name as your weak children, as your small children, we pray in Jesus' name that you would grow us in our certainty, Grow us in our faith, in our praise, and in our witness to the great things that you have done. Father, not for our achievement, not so that we can have praise, but so that you may be praised. You are our reward. I pray, Father, not that we would look good, But through our lives, our praise, and our witness, you would look good as you are good. You are good, and you do good. And we ask you today for more good. Again, that we would become increasingly certain of the worth of your beloved Son. Use our church. Use this family here for your glory and honor. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.